It's Tuesday, January 5th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, Mr. Ron Gross. Good to see you, my friend. Hey, hey, good to see you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Uh, we have a CEO change. We're going to dip into the full mailbag. It's our 10th anniversary here on Market Foolery, so we, wow. we will get to that. And we're actually going to start by dipping into the Market Foolery archives. Three <laughs> years ago this month, January 30th, 2018, the episode of Market Foolery that day was entitled Healthcare's Latest Game Changer. And we talked about the big announcement that Amazon and Berkshire Hathaway and JP Morgan Chase had put out they were forming a partnership aimed at cutting healthcare costs and improving services for employees. It would go on to be named Haven Healthcare. That was then. This is now. <laughs> Haven Healthcare has started to tell employees it is shutting down by the end of February. Turns out that healthcare is difficult, Ron, although <laughs> I am reminded of the fact that at the time, three years ago, this really sent some pretty big shockwaves through the healthcare community and healthcare stocks. Oh, yeah. United Health, Humana, CVS um, got smacked. And not surprisingly, um, they were up on the news that Haven has decided to call it quits after three years. But yeah, it was it was relatively exciting. Just just getting those three CEOs, you know, Buffett, Diamond and Bezos together was pretty interesting. Uh, Amazon, you know, has 1.1 million out of the 1.5 million employees combined. So, this was going to be uh, largely an Amazon-led uh, initiative, and, and we see them getting into the healthcare um, even um, outside of this deal. But, you know what? You nailed it. Healthcare's tough. This, this, is, this was a, a difficult um, initiative from the beginning. They wanted to improve access to primary care, simplify insurance coverage, make prescription drugs more affordable. Where have I heard all those things before that those are all wonderful things? Um, one day, let's hope we all get there in, in one way or another. But the ambitions were just too difficult to achieve. Each company had different priorities, different locations, different employee bases. Um, the existing healthcare system um, of each company required different types of fixes. And from what I've read, each company was actually executing their own projects separately from each other. And it just never came together um, as an, a joint venture. I think the writing was probably on the wall back in May when the CEO of Haven stepped down um, from day to day. And they had uh, had difficulty holding on to other senior executives, including tech executives, um, over the period of time. So time time to wrap it up. As I said, uh, shares of the the competition uh, rallied on that news, um, and uh, we'll live to fight this healthcare fight another day. This is a very large version of a scenario we've seen play out across all manner of industry. Uh, over the last 10 years, and even earlier than that, obviously, which is to say, large company, large entity comes into a new space, and stocks within that space start to sell off on, in some ways, the hypothetical. Um, and you know, the classic example of this over the last you know five, 10 years has been Apple, in part because of the amount of cash Apple has on the balance sheet. But we've you know we've seen days where stocks will fall just on the rumor of Apple is thinking about getting into 
you know, original programming. They're not going to buy Netflix. They're going to create their own. And just on rumors like that, we've seen days where Netflix would drop 5% or more. Um, and I, I think it's in some ways a good reminder for investors to really take a moment when, you know, because we're going to see this continue to play out, whether it's healthcare or other industries. It's going to continue to play out that like, oh, guess what? This company is now thinking about getting into this space and a a stock in your portfolio is going to drop because of it. Yeah, I think, you know, on a day-to-day basis, the market is is reactionary, short-sighted, shoots from the hip. Um, in the long term, I think it does a nice job of, of working things out. Um, although, as we've seen, or maybe are seeing, sometimes bubble or bubbles arise and the things need to uh, get smacked around a little bit before they get back to normal. Um, but these knee-jerk reactions, you know, when you put together Buffett, Diamond, and Bezos, I could see people saying, uh-oh, like, not only are these balance sheets unbelievable, but the power of these CEOs, the brilliance of these CEOs, if they put their heads together they could maybe disrupt the whole industry and so i could i could see you know you know wondering about that and maybe making an investment or selling an investment um to kind of play that uh, potential but you know as you said early stage hypothetical didn't really know what it was going to look like or what shape it would take and here we are three years later you know and it, it just didn't work Qualcomm is getting a new CEO. Steve Mullenkopf has been in the corner office since March of 2014. Qualcomm announced he is retiring in June when company president Cristiano Amon takes over. Mullenkopf is only 52. Mm-hmm. And I say only 52 because that's younger than me. I mean, this is, this is a young man, although, and I don't own shares of Qualcomm, but when I think about the past few years and the number of knockdown drag out fights that Qualcomm has been in with regulators with Apple uh, you know it reminds me of the the great line that Indiana Jones has in the first Raiders of the Lost Ark movie when Marion says to him you're not the man I knew 10 years ago and he <laughs> says it's not the years it's the mileage like you know Mullenkopf is 52 years old he's been CEO for basically seven years but in terms of mileage it's been more than seven years. Yeah, that's forty nine in dog years, and I bet that's that's how he feels. Because as you you mentioned a few things, it's been a really rough six years. Um, during his tenure, he had to deal with an antitrust case from the FTC over anti competitive practices. You mentioned a legal fight with Apple over patent licensings. It resulted in Qualcomm um, paying four point uh, paying four point five billion, and Apple's iPhone twelve uh, now uses Qualcomm's chips. Uh, there was a hostile takeover attempt by Broadcom. The Jana Partners, if you recall, the activist investors tried to go after them to get them to split the company up. And last but not least, we should not forget the $44 billion acquisition of NXP Semi that got scrapped as a result of the US-China political tensions and the trade war at the time. So, you know, they're in a good place now. I mean, the, the shares have crushed the market over the last five years. They're really capitalizing on the demand for 5G phones. Just a good time to maybe say, okay, I've been through the ringer. I've done a nice job here. I'm, I'm going to move on, and, and it's time for someone else to take the reins because it's been a rough six years for sure. And not to say that Mullenkopf is retiring. I mean, it, it sounds like he wants a break, but it... Uh, it it's not going to surprise me if a year from now or two years from now we see that he's emerged in the corner office of another company. Stepping away from Qualcomm for a second, 
when you see that a CEO is leaving a company that you own shares of, do you have a default reaction as an investor, or does it depend on the company? Um, yeah, I'll answer that question. I just want to say I just misspoke. The four point five billion the Qualcomm received, they didn't pay when they when they um, uh, had the, the fight with Apple. So I just wanted to make sure I clear that up. Um, so. CEOs, especially iconic CEOs or CEOs that have really, really been important to a business, if they leave, it has me scratching my head a bit, gets me a little bit nervous. So an example would be a founder, someone like Jim Sinegal at Costco. If he is going to decide to leave, I really want to make sure that the next CEO you know, is going to either follow in the footsteps um, from a culture perspective like Costco or business perspective. And really, it's, it's a great succession plan and it's really solid. On the other hand, if it's a CEO that reinvented a company like Satya Nadella comes to mind at, over at Microsoft and, and he's still there. But one day when he leaves, that would be another kind of nervous moment for me because he's done, done such a, a wonderful job of, of reinventing Microsoft. So. See, leaders always matter, just sometimes they matter more than others. Yeah, we talk from time to time about the concept of leash, like how long is the leash that you've got this stock on? In my own experience, when there have been times, Disney being the most recent example, where Bob Iger's leaving and the, the leash gets a little bit shorter on my shares of Disney. <laughs> I'm just like, okay, who, tell me about this Bob Chapek guy. <laughs> right, that, that's a perfect example. An iconic CEO who's done a wonderful job. It, you just want that to go on forever, right? Why wouldn't you? As long as that, that person is still still up for the job, um, and when and when they they go away, you know, it's time to re. You know, you, it's, there's nothing wrong with rethinking your investments. In fact, you should be rethinking your investments um, fairly consistently, with an eye, as we always say, towards being a long-term owner. Our email address is marketfoolery at fool.com. Got an email from Mike in New York City. He writes, I've been buying shares of Amazon and Mercado Libre over the last five to 10 years, and now they each make up about 20 to 25% of my stock-based portfolio, but only 10% of my total portfolio if I include stocks, my low-cost index fund, focused 401k and IRA and cash positions, and it drops even lower if I consider my equity in my home and other less liquid investments. Although this is a delightful problem I'm facing with two <laughs> consistent winners, the general rule that I hear is you shouldn't have more than 10% invested in a single stock. But what is the suggested denominator? Is it individual stock portfolio, total exposure to the market, total assets? I understand you can't provide individual advice, but what are your thoughts? I really like this question because yeah. I, he's he's thinking about this in in several layered ways, um, and I also like that he recognizes this is the proverbial good problem to have, <laughs> for sure. And. Not only can I not give investment advice, individual investment advice, but I'm not a financial planner. Um, so there might be others who have differing opinions, but I'm happy to give my opinion here. So when thinking about allocation, I think you need to look at it as a percent of your overall invested assets. So that would include stocks, funds, bonds, if you have them, all invested assets. I would include retirement assets in there and also cash, actually, if that cash is earmarked towards one day being invested and it just happens to be on the sidelines for now. Um, I would not include equity in your home if that's the home you live in. But if you have other real estate investments, then I would count them as invested assets and, and put them into the de denominator. 
So once I have done the math there, and once I see my overall exposure to any given stock investment, I do then, I, I, I like to see that exposure also as a percent of just my stock investments. And again, stock investments should include ETFs and funds if those ETFs and funds are stock focused. Um, I think that's a, that's an, another nice metric to just know. Um, the rule of 10% that he mentioned, um, not having more than that in any one company, I think that's really based on your own individual situation and your own risk tolerance. So while I personally agree with the 10% rule, give or take a percent or two, there are others, plenty of my colleagues who would disagree and would be happy to let um, a great company run to somewhere higher than 10%, 20% perhaps even. Um, so. I, I do think that's more of an individual circumstance, and you just got to make sure you can sleep at night, and you know you can withstand any you know large you know negative uh, hit to any one company if it happens to be this you know oversized position in your portfolio. Yeah, the only thing I'll add to that is I have a couple of stocks in my portfolio that are make up more than ten percent of my stock portfolio, and I'm fine with that. That being said, there are a couple of companies that I own shares of. If for some reason they ballooned to become ten percent or more, I, w I would think about trimming those back. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you just feel lucky and you know fortunate, and you're like, okay, I'm I'm moving on. That's a little bit too much for me. And that that speaks to the risk profile of the company, the risk profile, you know, the, that strength of leadership, the balance sheet, how how great the earnings quality happened to be. So many different factors of why or why not you would feel comfortable with an outsized position. So before we wrap up, I just uh, wanted to say a couple more quick things about uh, the fact that we're we're now at the ten year mark for market foolery. And, and I did talk about uh, a lot of this last week uh, on the New Year's Eve episode, so I'm not going to repeat everything I said. But uh, Ron, I think it's appropriate that you were on the show today because I last week I talked about how uh, the analysts who come on this show, there, there's no financial incentive for you guys to be here, uh, and, and I appreciate you doing it. And the reason I think it's appropriate that you're here is because uh, there's no one I've felt guiltier about um, <laughs> browbeating to come into the studio than no, you. No, I just no. think of back when we were in the office, and I would come to, and I would literally stand by your desk and be like, come on, man, I, just, I need you to come into the studio today. So anyway, I, I just wanted to thank you for that. Um, here is a stat I came across this morning. In the last two years, for anyone who's wondering, ah, it seems like there are a lot of podcasts. You're not <laughs> wrong. In the last two years, more than 1.3 million new podcasts have been started. Wow. And in the business category, over 110,000 have been started. So that market foolery continues to be one of the most popular business news podcasts is a testament to a lot of things. It is a testament to the dozens of listeners, uh, the work that the analysts put in, Dan Boyd uh, producing the show for so many years, um, and reminds me of the old saying that there's no substitute for showing up. And showing up day after day for 10 years Market foolery uh, to me is an offshoot of the Motley Fool as a company. A lot of people don't know there are 500 people around the world who work at the Motley Fool. And the dedication to helping people invest better, to making the world smarter, happier, and richer, which is our company's mission, it all flows from Tom and David Gardner and the company they are leading in 2021 and beyond. 
I uh, couldn't agree more. And I will just say thank you for your kind words, but it has been my pleasure to be part of this show as well as Motley Fool Money over the last decade. And um, you make it easy. You make it fun. And as far as I'm concerned, there's nobody better in the business than you. So when they, when they write the history of business podcasts one day, uh, I hope you're right up at the top. You were too kind. I appreciate that. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.